We're going to look today at uh, Jonah. I'm sure you know about this story, but I'm going to read only two verses, and uh, we'll go through other passages as we go along. Jonah in chapter 3, verse 10, we read that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Then chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry, or do you have the right to be angry? Let us pray. Abba Father, I just pray that you will speak to our hearts this morning. I pray that you will reveal our Lord Jesus Christ to us. We're here gathered probably with many needs. Maybe what is on our mind is not the need to win souls. It's maybe a problem that we have or a trial we're going through or a sickness. Yet, Father, we pray that we set aside those things if we can. And by your help, we will focus on this great need, the need to reach the lost. Lord, help us and give us a heart for the lost, a heart like our Master, Jesus Christ. And we ask it in the Savior's name. Amen. You know, the book of Jonah, it's a little bit neglected book. A lot of people don't think of it as an evangelistic book. Matter of fact, a few years ago, a Muslim friend of mine that I was witnessing to asked me who Jonah is, because Jonah is mentioned in the Muslim book in the Quran, but that's it, just the name. So I got my Arabic Bible and I gave it to him and I said, read yourself about Jonah. So he read through the whole book and he said, so that's who Jonah is. <laughs> then he asked me about Job. Because also it's mentioned just the name, but no details are given in their book about Job. So I told him to read the, the book of Job in the Bible. He read it, and he said, so that's who Job is. <laughs> the Lord drew him through his word, through these two books, that he came to Christ one Christmas day. So you see, the whole Bible, the whole of God's word, is truth and is uh, there to teach. So I would like to talk to you this morning about some people preoccupation with lesser things than reaching lost people with the gospel. The tragedy of the story of Jonah, I think, is often misunderstood. Jonah was a spiritual man. He was a godly man. He was in touch with God, in touch enough to know that God was asking him to do something. And many of us have problems regarding guidance 
from time to time if we are honest with ourselves. And we would love to have a red telephone to heaven to know what to do. Well, here is a man, a prophet, though he may not have had that red telephone, he knew what God was telling him to do because God himself spoke to him and gave him direct commands. Chapter 1 already, verse 2, we read the Lord telling him, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Straightforward command. And we know that Nineveh was the capital city of Israel, prime enemy, Assyria. God told him, Jonah, I want you to carry, to carry a burden for the people of Nineveh, for these lost people, who probably are modern days Iraqi. I want you to carry a burden for the Iraqi people and preach repentance to them before it's too late. Many Bible commentator and preacher, understandably, have portrayed Jonah at time as a closed-minded bigot, a racist, an anti-Gentile, a prodigal prophet who turned his back on God. Some have even called him a coward. But I wanted to say today that I disagree with this interpretation of Jonah, because I think it underestimates and belittles the great dilemma that this prophet of God had. It's too simplistic to call him any of these names. What was his dilemma? Well, Assyria was the rising power, the superpower of the day. And Jonah knew, because Jonah knew the word of God, that Assyria was destined to destroy Israel, or at least to attempt to do so. Twenty years before Jonah, the prophet Isaiah foretold that Assyria would destroy Israel for her sin. Add to that the fact that the Assyrians were famous for their brutality. You could call them the Nazis of the day. So Jonah was afraid. He was terrified of what would happen to the nation of Israel if Assyria was to survive and if they were to come down and evade Israel. We know that Jonah came from a border town, and uh, he may well have witnessed the savagery of the Assyrians. So no doubt that he was thrilled at the thought that God wanted him to go and pronounce judgment, that God's wrath was going to be poured on the Ninevites. But Jonah's dilemma came because of one fearful thought that he had. He knew God. Here is a man who not only knew God's will, but he knew God. And his one fear was that God was merciful. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 4, you see this. He expressed it. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I know that you are gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What a beautiful statement. Jonah knew that if these Ninevites cried out at the 11th hour, God will have mercy on them. Now that's something 
We're rejoicing today, isn't it, if we are saved. The long-suffering mercy of God. But you see here is the dilemma of the prophet, and you find it in the Old Testament scriptures time and time again. A prophet was a man of the people and a man of God. He was a man for the nation and for Jehovah. And so there were times when the nation was going away from God, and God was calling the prophet in another direction, and the prophets felt torn in two. Their hearts was broken with the people and with God, going in two different directions. This is where Jonah is. This is a mighty man of God with a heart for the nation, Israel, and a heart for God. But unfortunately, he chooses not to go with God to let the Ninevite get what they deserve and to actually take on himself the judgment from God from being disobedient to his command. Wrongly, of course, he chose divine vengeance on himself rather than talking to these enemies about the living God. And so he decides to run away to a Spanish holiday resort, Tarshish, and the coast of Spain to get away from God. And you know the story. I don't need to tell you all about it. The great fish is sent by God to discipline and chasten, and that's what God does to us when we are disobedient, even for understandable reasons. The great fish swallowed him up. Three days and three nights he was in the belly of the fish, and God throws him out of the fish and gives him a second chance and tells him to go and preach repentance to these people. And notice that it is the same command that he gave him the first time. Chapter 3, verse 2, the same command is given. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And so this time he goes and he preaches with the hope that maybe God wouldn't grant them grace and mercy, but would judge them in the end. But there is a city-wide repentance, a great awakening. The king issues a proclamation and tells the people in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Maybe he relents and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. But that is the problem. Jonah gets very angry at that. We read in verse 1 of chapter 4, Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. Well, in verse 5 of chapter 4, we see that he hasn't lost all hope that God would destroy these folks. And in verse 5, we read, Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city, there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's still hoping that God would send fire and brimstone from heaven and destroy the Ninevite. While he's sitting there, we read in verse 6 to 11, God caused during the night a vine, a plant, to grow up to shelter and shadow him. It says that Jonah was overjoyed at the fact that God has provided this thing for him. 
But in the morning, God sent a worm, and that worm ate away at that plant. And Jonah got so upset that God has given him this plant to shelter him, and now God was taking it away. Jonah was more upset by the destruction of his precious vine than he was about the destruction of lost Ninevite. So God had to teach him a lesson, verse 10 and 11 of chapter 4. The Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Now, brothers and sisters, my message this morning is very simple and is this. We as Christians, we as the Church of Jesus Christ, today in our generation, a time we can allow vines to cloud our perception and prevent us from taking the gospel to the lost. There can be things in our life and in our churches that we cherish at the expense of the eternal destiny of lost souls. Things that can prevent us, hold us back from the great commission that Jesus Christ has given us. We can be more zealous about conserving and preserving, protecting those things than we are about saving dying souls. Those things can even be good, God-given things, just as that vine was. So I want to give you six suggestions this morning of the vines that we might have in the 21st century church and as Christians. Things that are preventing us from reaching the lost. Things that we esteem perhaps more highly. And if we lost them, we would be more upset, like Jonah, than about the millions and millions of people who are sliding into Christless eternity. And here is the first one. Comfort. The vine of comfort. In Amos chapter 6, verse 1, the prophet said, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. One of the greatest problems the church has in the West today is the enemy of materialism and affluence. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I don't want us all to go back to the bad days when nobody has anything, no shoes on their feet or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. Every good and perfect gift comes down from God. But we need to be very careful that we don't start to worship God's gift and not the giver of the gifts. Affluence and materialism has become a great problem in our days. Campbell Morgan many years ago said, persecution is only Satan's second best weapon. His first is materialism. That was in his day. It's a lot worse today. In the prophet Haggai's day, the people were procrastinating over rebuilding the temple. Though it was God commissioned for their life. They didn't understand why their crops were starting to fail. Their businesses were going down. 
So God told them in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, Is it time for you yourself to be living in your paneled houses while this house remain in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much and have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn, you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. In other words, they were materialistic. They were more concerned about their own houses, their own domestic life, their own comforts than the house of God. Is that where we are today? It was the zeal of God's house that ate up the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe, prophetically speaking, we are in the period of the church of Laodicea. One of the things that marked ancient Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 was affluence and wealth. On a human level in Asia Minor, there was no better place to live than Laodicea. You heard what they were saying. We're rich, we're increased, we're blessed. And yet, in God's eyes, they were poor. They had the poverty of riches. The enemy Satan took them through materialism. Some of you may know from all the media coverage that China has been undergoing a consumerist, a capitalistic revolution of some kind over the last number of years. That has caused a great problem for the Church of Jesus Christ in China that has literally mushroomed during the years of severe persecution. The Church is now having to come to terms with what has affected us for years, materialism, affluence. Li Tian, dear brother, famous Shanghai pastor, said these words. Consumerism makes you think you don't have to suffer to follow Jesus. It makes you think you can have lots of things and Christ as well. In reality, you end up with a lot of things and most of the time you don't even realize that Christ has gone. A very well-known Christian Chinese leader said this, it could be that consumerism is a more effective killer of Christianity than communism ever was. And William MacDonald put it this, luxury living abound on every hand, while souls are dying for want of the gospel. Christians are wearing crowns instead of bearing a cross. We became more emotionally stirred over sports, politics, television, than we do over Christ. There is little sense of spirit you need. There is little longing for true revival. We would be, let's face it, we would be more concerned, I would be more concerned, if my home comfort were lost from me, than I am but souls that are being lost every moment for all eternity. Am I wrong? Could a mariner sit idle if he heard the drowning cry? Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patient die? Could a fireman sit idle, let man burn and give no hand? Can we sit at ease in Zion while the world around us is damned? You see, brothers and sisters, comfort is a great vine. And here is the second one. 
self-preoccupation. What does that mean? Well, I suppose it's connected a little with comfort. We like to pamper ourselves, don't we? Amusing and entertaining ourselves. There is a very interesting book that has come out in recent years by a man called Neil Postman, who is a humanist professor. He's not a Christian. And he's a media theorist. Do you know what he untitled the book? But let me tell you first what the book is all about. It's about how television and the media has affected us all in our lives. And do you know what he untitled the book? Amusing ourselves to death. This is a humanist. Do you know how the word amuse is made of? The origin is French, amuser. It's made up really of two words, a, which means no, and muse, which means think. You put the two together and it means no thinking. Put in your brain out of gear, out of gear. Now it wouldn't be so bad if amusement and entertainment was only harming ourselves. But you know what Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 7? None of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. Someone may say, who cares if I spend my life amusing myself and entertaining myself? I'm not doing anybody any harm. If you are a Christian, friends, it is a vine. We can be fiddling while the world burns. You heard that expression, haven't you? Fiddling where Rome burns. It means to occupy oneself in unimportant matters and neglect priorities during crises. The origin is that statement, of course, fiddling while Rome burns, is the story that Nero played his violin while Rome was burning during the Great Fire in AD 64. Is the church fiddling while the world burns? Our selfish preoccupation would be more distressed and devastated to lose them than the fact that lost people all around are going to hell. Comfort, self-preoccupation, and here is the third one, isolation. Now we believe in separation as Christians. The child of God is to be holy in the word, but not of the word. But the fact of the matter is our separation very quickly can become isolation. And we get out of touch with what's going on in the world. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed in John 17, verse 15 to 19, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent them into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. We're not to go into a little corner in a holy group and become sheltered from what's going on in our world. Because you know what happens then? We become detached from the pain that sin is creating. And we get so sheltered that we, we don't know what's going on. We become numb and detached of the hurt and of the lostness of the people around us. Often legalism can add to this. Now, I don't want to go into this in too much detail, but you know that there are people around that whenever 
particularly some young person, want to do something for God, they have all the man-made laws and reasons and rules why they shouldn't do it. I believe my Bible like anybody else, and I stick to it as close as I can. But we got to get away from man-made rules. And that's often what they are. D.L. Moody was greatly used of God, but he had a hard time from some of the religious folk when God was using him. One of the criticism he had came under was that he had appeals at the end of the gospel meeting. Do you know what Moody answer to that was? And I love this. He said, I prefer the way I do it to the way you don't do it. Isn't that brilliant? I prefer the way I do it to the way you don't do it. We need to start doing something because people are lost and are hidden to a Christless eternity. That's the issue. Not the vine of our isolation. So comfort, self-preoccupation, isolation, and fourthly, denominationalism. You see, friend, I believe that denominationalism comes from human pride. I'm not saying that organization and denominations were not spirit-born acts of God in the beginning. But division and sectarianism in the church of Jesus Christ was never, ever in the mind of God. Ever. That man should separate themselves from one another in the body, in the one body that is Christ, and put a man's name, an organization name, over their building and keep themselves to themselves was never in God's intention. The only place, as a matter of fact, in the Bible I find anything like that is in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, when Paul said, one of you say I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? It was never of God's intention but human pride conceived of it. But here is the problem, evangelistically speaking. Many folks in their various sects and organizations, and people can do it in independent churches as well, they are so busy conserving their own corner with the partisan spirits of competition that the energies they should be investing in winning souls is put into conserving the little corner of their own vineyard at the expense of others. That's what's happening. Time, prayer, money, energy, sweat is going into keeping our flag flying. And the world is going to hell. Everybody is afraid to say it, but that's the truth. Mark chapter 9, verse 38 is a wonderful verse. The disciple came to Jesus and they told him, Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do you know what the disciple vine was? Their little group, the group of disciples. And boy, they had reason, if anybody had, to be protective of it because there were 12 who were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But here was a man outside their little camp and God was using him. And in fact, if you look back at Mark Chapter 9, verse 28. You find that the disciples, when they were faced with the demon-possessed boy, they did not have the power to cast out the demon. And they said to the Lord in private, behind closed door, 
Why could we not cast it out? And here was a man doing what they could not do, and they were criticizing him because he wasn't one of their number. That's the problem today, my friends, when we allow our group to become a vine. Do you know what happens? God goes and uses somebody else. I say before it's too late, let all our vine of denominationalism and whatever ism perish, and let Christ and the truth of his gospel alone arise and the one true church. The, five, the fifth vine is theological extremism. You see there are theological vines. Now I don't wish to be controversial for controversy's sake, controversy's sake, but there is a sort of Calvinism that has all but paralyzed evangelism in some corner of the church today. Let me say first that some of the godliest saints and some of the greatest evangelists were Calvinists, and I'm not entering into that debate. But let me say this, there is something systematically wrong with any theology that silences the call of the gospel, whether it's Calvinism or universalism, whatever ism it is. Young people are being instructed today that they can't tell a sinner that God loves them. They can't tell a soul that Christ died for them. And that can only choke through evangelism. You know, in 1786, William Carey, a great missionary, had laid on his heart the burden for world mission and especially the people of India. And he laid it before leaders' meeting. The eminent Dr. Ryland stood to his feet and said, Young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. That was a lie from the pit of hell, if ever there was one. Because God has ordained that he should do it with the preaching of foolish men like yourself and like me. It would not happen in any other way. God can, of course. God can have exception to the rule in miraculous ways, and we've seen him in the field. But the norm is that we preach the truth of the gospel and seek to win souls. The Bible does not teach a falsified view of God's sovereignty that nullifies man's responsibility. Both are in the book. Thomas D. Witt Talmadge, a prominent preacher in the 19th century, put it like this over 100 years ago. The present attitude of things is like this. In a famine-struck district, a table has been provided, and it's loaded with food enough for all. The odors of the meat fill the air. Everything is ready. The platters are full, the chalices are full, the baskets are full. Why not let the people in? The door is open. But there is a cluster of wise men blocking up the door, discussing the content of the caster standing mid-table. They are shaking their fists at each other. One says there is too much vinegar. One says there is too much sweet oil. Another says there is not the proper proportion of red pepper. I say get out of the way and let the hungry people come in. The door is blocked up by the controversies of men with whole libraries on their back, disputing as to what proportion of sweet oil and cayenne pepper should make up the creed. I cry out, 
Get out of the way. Let the hungry world come in. That's what we need. The vine of comfort has become a problem, self-preoccupation, isolation, denominationalism, theological extremism. But finally, there is the political and cultural vine. Hudson Taylor, you may have heard of him, great missionary. I encourage you to read his biography. He went to China at a time when Britain was at war with China. It was like a missionary going to Germany in World War II, or one of us going as a missionary to North Korea today. If that wasn't stigma enough, when Taylor got out there, he took the decision of becoming a Chinese to the Chinese in order to win them for Christ. He shaved his hair, that's the way they all wore it, and he kept the big long ponytail, the traditional ponytail that all Chinese people back then had. He dyed it black, his hair wasn't black, and he almost blinded himself in the process of doing it. He continually went wearing Chinese clothes, and even the Chinese at that time believed that the British man's dignity was seen in the way he dressed differently. So Taylor's action not only deeply shocked the British people at home, but it was shocking to the Chinese as well. He had gone native, and as far as the British were concerned, he had lost all credibility. He lost almost all of his support, and many went to the extent of labeling him a traitor to the British Empire. But he set all of his liberty aside and became enslaved to their custom in order to win souls for Christ. And boy, did he win souls for Christ. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 23? Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. Now, friends, listen. Jonah was a good man. Let's not miss that. He was a good man. Let's not be hard on Jonah. He was a good man. He was even a godly man. But even though he was a good man and a godly man, he didn't understand the mind of God toward lost people. He had the truth, and you can have the truth, and yet he wasn't in tune with what God was doing among lost people. Now, the encouraging thing was that God used him anyway. But the tragedy is that though God used him, Jonah did not enjoy the blessing. Now, please think about this for just one moment as we close. Here is a good man, a godly man, a righteous prophet, 
and he's in the middle of a revival, a whole city, and he's not enjoying it. Isn't that sad? And you know that can happen. I say this morning to you, brothers and sisters, and this is my message, let our vines perish, not the lost. Whatever vine we're sitting under, comfort, self-preoccupation, isolation, denominationalism, theological extremism, political or cultural vine, or whatever vine, let them perish in order that we may be able to save the lost. God does not need our vines. And maybe God needs to curse them as he did to Jonas, even our good vines. What is it that hinders us? What vine are you sheltering under that is preventing you from reaching the lost? I love the last three verses of Jonah chapter 4, verse 9 and 11. God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? I want to finish today by reading an account from Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary in India. She writes this of her experience one night, and I'm quoting it. In a village of India, Amy Wilson Carmichael wrote, I could not go to sleep, so I lay awake and looked and I saw as it seemed this, that I stood on a grassy lawn and at my feet a precipice broke down into infinite space. Back I drew dizzy at the depth. Then I saw people moving single file along the grass. They were making for the edge. There was a woman with a baby in her arms and another little child holding to her dress. She was on the very verge. Then I saw that she was blind. She lifted her foot for the next step. It trod air. All the cry as they went over. Then I saw more streams of people from all parts. They were blind, stone blind. All made straight for the precipice edge. There were shrieks as they suddenly found themselves falling and a tossing up of helpless arms clutching at empty air. Then I saw that along the edge there were watchmen set at intervals, but the intervals were far too great. They were wide. They were unguarded gaps between. All over these gaps the people fell in their blindness, quiet and worn, and the gulf yawned like the mouth of hell. Then I saw, like a little picture of peace, a group of people under some trees, with their back to the gulf. They were making daisy chains. There was another group. It was made up of people whose great desire was to get more watchmen, but they found that very few wanted to go. Once a girl stood alone in her place, waving the people back, but her mother and other relative called and reminded her that her furlough was due. 
Being tired and needing a chance, she had to go and rest for a while. But no one was sent to guard her gap. And over and over, the people fell, like a waterfall of souls. Once a child caught a bundle of grass that grew on the very brink of the gulf. It clung convulsively and it called, but nobody seemed to hear. Then the roots of grass gave way, and with a cry, the child went over. And the girl who longed to be back in the gap, though she heard the little one cry, she sprang up and wanted to go, at which they approved her. Then they sang a hymn. Then through the hymn, the pain of a million broken hearts rang out in one full drop, one sob. It was the cry of blood. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I just pray that you will forgive us. Forgive us for not hearing the need. Forgive us for not feeling the pain, for being so caught up with ourselves that at times we are totally insensible. Our Father, many people all around us need Christ. There may even be one in this place who needs him today. Father, help us to do more to reach them. Help us to get rid of our vines. And we pray for guidance to know what to do in this age where people seem so unreachable. Hear us, O oh Lord, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>